Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 274 with Chris Edmonds. I think you'll enjoy this chat with Chris as he unpacks civility and building that culture in the workplace and how it can get broken down in not-so-obvious ways at times. So you'll learn, one, troubling research pointing to incivility on the rise, two, the three Ds that destroy civility, and three, a reframe on blame. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items that we've referenced, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F274. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out some of our handy stuff. One handy thing I'll point you to right now is the magnifying glass, which is right there in the search bar, and now on mobile too, such that you can search any key phrase. And with all 274 episodes transcribed, if you're facing an issue that's come up before, we might have talked about it. And if we haven't, hey, I want to hear about it. Email me, Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com, and we'll keep the most relevant guest goodies flowing your way. Now, here is Chris's story. S. Chris Edmonds is a sought-after speaker, author, and executive consultant who is the founder and CEO of the Purposeful Culture Group. After a 15-year executive career leading high-performing teams, Chris began his consulting company in 1990. He has also served as a senior consultant with the Ken Blanchard Company since 1995. Chris is one of Inc. Magazine's 100 Great Leadership Speakers and was a featured presenter at South by Southwest 2015. Chris is the author of The Culture Engine, the best-selling Leading at a Higher Level with Ken Blanchard and five other books. Chris's blog, podcast, research, and videos can be found at Driving Results Through Culture. Thousands of followers enjoy his daily quotes on organizational culture, servant leadership, and workplace inspiration on Twitter at SC Edmonds. Visit his website at drivingresultsthroughculture.com. Big thanks to Chris for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Chris. Chris, thanks so much for joining us again on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, I am excited to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Oh, well, I'm excited too. So we chatted uh, way back when in episode 149. Wow. And um, yeah. Almost so, a year ago. It's it's wild. The time flies, and you're still making great ideas out in the world. So it's as fitting that we chat again. Well, I thank you for that, and I, I certainly have found that my focus is upon culture and leadership, and we still have culture and leadership problems all around the globe. So I have job security. That's true. That's true. Well, and I, <laughs> I was also intrigued by you have another. I don't know if you'd call it a job, an avocation. (laughs) You're a published songwriter and performer. What's the story about this here? It's true. It's true. I was convinced, okay, this is going to go back probably before the year of your birth. So I started playing guitar when I was 12. That was 1964. Yes, it was the Beatles that inspired that. And by the time I hit college in 1970, I was convinced that I didn't need a college degree. I was going to go to Hollywood and get work immediately. So that did not play out, but I did lose almost a full year of college courses, which there was some pain 
right? Having to recover from that. But but what I realized, and I've been I've been a working musician forever in in, in LA and in San Francisco and in Austin, which is a very very cool music town even today and uh we've been here in denver for 12 years and i i started with a band and and it wasn't a perfect match from a value standpoint what a surprise that that would be right one of my biases and and joined a team in late 06 that i'm still a part of and they're twisted they're immensely talented great songwriters great performers and so we've been playing together for you know 11, 12 years and have evolved from a country thing to a country rock thing to a classic rock thing to now I'm learning Gaga and Pink because the market is they want variety. And so we do mostly corporate stuff and, and weddings and stuff. We do some festivals. We do a few clubs here and there. But I actually got uh, official songwritership from ASCAP for some of the music I wrote back in the early 70s. Because once you perform it and someone pays you for that, you are an official professional songwriter. So I haven't written anything in the last 10 years. Most of my writing, as you know, goes around the culture and leadership thing. But um, I have a studio 20 feet away that has 20 guitars hanging in humidified cabinets. It's a problem. 20? It's a problem. (laughs) I've cut back, and years ago, my wife would just kind of we we are celebrating 39 years of wedded bliss next month, so there's another podcast story potentially. But I said I want to. I found a guitar. I want to buy a guitar. She said, "Fine. Which one are you going to sell?" Right. All right. There you go. So she's pretty smart. She's pretty smart. <laughs> so it's like just like at work when they make a request of you. Say, okay, sure thing. Which of these things on my plate should uh-huh. go away? Uh-huh. Which of these projects would you like me to let go of? But I hated, hated selling guitars. But I've, I've actually, I've actually been pretty good, and and I've got some banjos, and I've got some mandolins, and I've got a bass, and and I make reasonable music on most of them. Cool. All right. Well, so the main topic of today is is not so much your musical career, although that's intriguing, sure. or your guitar collection. But <laughs> you caught my eye with your take on civility, which yes, I think is an important issue, and and I want to hear why it's important to you. Well, it's so interesting because there's, you know, my bias has been, let me help leaders, A, be aware of the quality of their culture, and let's let's craft a proven template of sorts, a system of sorts that will allow leaders to be more intentional about the way people treat each other. But boy, what an interesting year we've had with the Me Too approach and the dynamic that it has caused with with women who've been badly treated for, oh, let's call it centuries, by men in power, being able to stand up and say, not anymore, never again. And so what really struck me is Weber Shandwick is a firm. Yes, at WeberShandwick.com. And they've done the state of civility surveys, research for the last six, seven years or so. And so at about the, the time of the Me Too, let's call it tidal wave, Weber Shandwick came out with this wonderful, completely depressing data about how basically 69% of people surveyed, that's that's workplace, plus its 
community, so it's neighborhoods. 69% say that there's a problem with civility today in, in America. And it's in 2010, it was about 65%. It dropped to about 63% at 12 and, and 2013. But it's a, a problem. And 75% believe that incivility in America has risen to crisis levels. That's not a, oh, this is something someone ought to look at. This is a significant red flag. And so I just believe that if we allow the incivility to continue, these numbers aren't going to get better. They're going to get worse. And and I'm convinced that with as much time as people spend in their workplaces or doing work, if they're remote workers, which of course is, is growing, the degree of them being treated with trust and respect is not offsetting the degree to which they're they're being treated incivility wise so i'm convinced that this is something that leaders need to not just be aware of but grab the bull by the horns and and look at the quality of relationships in their workplaces and if we can start there we might actually make some headway in the next year or two we know chris it's interesting this is a this is a very serious topic and yet i can't help but chuckle as I imagine all the incivil things I might say to you as a, as a, as a, as a joke. We, we, uh, could, well, we could go there very quickly, which of course <laughs> twisted mind of mine is I laugh, but then it's no, 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 no. We can't say that on the air. That's not good. Right. So, you know, keep the iTunes clean rating here. Well, well so maybe let's, let's get clear with definitions a bit. When we talk about civility, how would you roughly define that? And, and what is the, the opposite of civility? It's interesting. I've I've learned over the years and, and blessed with Ken Blanchard's friendship and mentorship. And and Ken Blanchard taught us the power of simple stories and simple ideas. And he, he of course, with the one minute manager way back in nineteen seventy eight, taught us that there were three secrets. So so one of the things that I've learned from Ken is there's three things that we can remember as humans. So one of the things that, that has been very, very consistent, and I've been doing research around, again, the quality of workplace cultures for 25 years. And so my three Ds are perfect descriptions of the absence of civility, and they are dismissing, discounting, demeaning. So if we think of the workplace experiences that we've had over our careers, those three come up very, very quickly. And we can see different faces popping up in the little movie screen on the inside of our of our foreheads. And it and it's, it can be driven by power, it can be driven by politics, it can be driven by flat out angry people that have really no business supervising anyone, including themselves. But the idea of dismissing others' ideas, dismissing others' efforts, dismissing others' accomplishments, there's no good in the relationship that's going to come of that. There is going to be a logical erosion of trust, respect, and dignity. What a surprise. And my three Ps, of course, are around the culture side, which is purposeful, positive, productive. And none of those three Ps are going to be able to gain traction and be sustained if you have any of those dismissive, demeaning, discounting behaviors happen. And the reality is, is that as we look at our workplaces and we look at the kind of behavior that often gets 
recognized, gets rewarded, gets people increasing responsibilities, and all of a sudden, well, you were a great salesperson, meaning you were aggressive, assertive, right? You were the most bold with getting customers to you know, give in to your demands for buying X or Y or Z, then you might then become a team leader, in which case, well, because you were a terrific, by the way, maybe may have been mean, right, individual contributor, then naturally, we're going to put a team under your your control. And if there's not really a sensitivity that hmm, managing a team is different than managing myself, the three D's is not going to get us anywhere. The three P's will get us somewhere. So you've heard me use a couple of three different languages, the three D's, which are going to erode the trust, respect, dignity. There's the trust, respect, dignity statement alone, which is pretty important. And then it's the purposeful, positive, productive team culture, division culture, work culture. So anything that happens that is in those three Ds is going to fit right into the incivility side. Well, I'd love to get your take. I have a feeling that listeners, myself included, would say, I don't dismiss, I don't discount, I don't demean. Can you share, you know, what are some maybe subtle or overlooked ways that we can be guilty of doing this stuff? It's so interesting, and it happens often in in one-on-one kinds of scenarios. We have a lot of organizations, especially in the U.S. and, and in Europe, are doing a lot more project-driven work environments. So, so in other words, I might be in a team of, and, and I'll use a classic one of salespeople, but we're working on a big project, which means I'm working with technical folks and folks that do manufacturing, for example, or they are you know, delivering services out in the field around the globe or whatnot. So my project team may not be a team that is a, quote, intact team. It might change from project to project. And what can happen in that dynamic is there is often, again, this is very Western, it's about showing up others. So if I can withhold information from you, then I look like I know more than you do. I'm smarter than you do. I'm more valuable than you are. And yet what I'm doing is I'm eroding the team's ability to get their work done and to wow that customer consistently. So I can be very indirect by withholding information that you've asked me for that I'm supposed to give you. But I I can be very, very, very subtle in that way. The ideas that often get generated in a project team, and most project teams are not calm and cool, you know, they're hair on fire, right? They're moving, they're moving pretty fast and often deadlines are increasing. And, you know, we may not be delivering exactly according to plan, which increases everyone's heartbeats and whatnot. So the pressure goes up. It can again help me as a player on that team, maybe not a leader on the team, as a player on the team, to say, weren't you supposed to have that done last week? I still am waiting for X. That's discounting. That is the dismissing. Someone comes up with an idea. I know we can fix this if we just all stop and do X right now. And if you and three others in the room go, that'll never work. We've tried that before. There's the dismissing thing. The idea of winning and and the idea it's so interesting as i look at organizations and how poorly as metaphors we use sports a lot and of course it's, it's a very american thing i get it it certainly happens in in europe but the sports thing is about winning too 
it's not about a great locker room and a great team and we all sacrifice to win. It's about me beating you, us beating your team. So those subtle things are all about keeping score and about me looking better than you, including me making you look bad. So that's one avenue. Another avenue, and I remember a a culture client that was a delight because they made such great progress. But what I typically do when I go into a client who's saying, you know, we think our culture's bad slash (laughs) broken and we don't know what to do. Leaders are really not asked to manage the quality of their culture. So when they discover that the culture is, is bent or broken, they may not know exactly what to do. So they may do nothing. That's not helpful. They may try something which could be helpful. They may bring, you know, a consultant like me in, which could be helpful. Hopefully helpful. So this particular client, I did probably 24, 25 phone interviews, part of my discovery, to learn. So what are the norms, right, in this culture? What are the things that get valued and validated? What are the things that get, right, quashed or discounted in some way? And what I learned was that the executive team, uh, there were five members of that executive team, teased each other and their direct reports mercilessly. I mean, from the moment they hit the door, they'd been thinking of cutting remarks they could use with, quote, with their buddies. They really did like each other, and they really did trust each other. But what the interviews helped me realize is that those comments, hilarious, creative as they may be, erode trust, respect, and dignity. And people basically said the teasing is so bad that I can't simply show up without my armor on. And my armor on might be I'm on edge, right? Or I'm thinking myself of what's the comeback I'm going to make to Lee when he comes by or whatever it is. It creates a energy-sucking and heart-sucking kind of dynamic. And these guys were shocked. They said, no one's ever told us that the teasing is bad. And they, all of a sudden, kind of guy said, no one. And they said, well, we've had a little bit of feedback, but we dismissed it. (laughs) Right, right. There's one of my Ds. So it's interesting, the bold, dismissive things. The, you know, you're an idiot. You shouldn't be in charge of this project. You always fall apart when the pressure's gone. You know, those kinds of messages are not teasing, right? They're very, very bold and demeaning and eroding people's confidence. And, and again, it's the I win, you lose kind of a dynamic. It's the subtler things that leaders may not be aware that are, oh, he's only teasing, right? Well, sure, but But if through that teasing, you are reducing trust and respect, you're reducing the likelihood of people proactively solving problems for their customers and for for the company, that's really stupid. That's not just dumb. That is full-on stupid. Okay. Well, that's a great example there with with regard to the teasing. I'd love a few more, maybe even (laughs) some nonverbal things. You know, I don't even say a word, but I am in indirectly or unintentionally being dismissive, discounting to me. Let's see how many eyes have rolled across tables in yours and my careers over the year. So there's the heavy size. I mean, again, some of us can go to our own families, and, and my mother was a pro 
at the nonverbal dismissive stuff. My poor father. Mom's 96 years old, still here. She's actually turned very kind, which is just a shock to, to most of us. But um, I'll go visit her next month, which is kind of cool. But the body language conversation, and it's about right the slumping in the chair, and it's the holding one's head in your hands and shaking your heads while someone's explaining their idea or their solution, or here's what I tried to do and it didn't quite work. All of those things, everybody notices. And, and especially if you're in a leadership position and you begin to either, again, verbally discount and demean, verbally dismiss people's efforts and ideas, everybody else is watching. And so there's this interesting dynamic of, I don't want the eye roll. If they get the eye roll, then I could be winning, right? Because I'm not, I'm not being judged at this point by the boss or whatnot. And it's so interesting to think back to some of my, you know, they weren't worst bosses, but they were really, really challenging bosses. And one I remember, I worked for him for a couple of years, and I remember him being incredibly talented at the the full body dismissiveness and it was and it was classic it was just wonderful it was the heavy sigh and it was the shaking of the head and it was the getting up and pacing while someone is those are not subtle right those are those are very very bold and his intent was to express disappointment Right, that we weren't doing the right things, that the problem wasn't solved, that the customer wasn't satisfied, etc. But his anger was so powerful in the room. And the thing that was very interesting about as you pose that question, I get this guy's image clearly pacing in one of our conference rooms. And I remember when I left that job that he wrote me a very kind card that said, appreciate all you've done. You've really advanced our programs and your customers love you and yada, yada, yada. And I completely dismissed it because it was the first time in two years I'd ever heard an encouraging word from him. So you think about my expectations day to day around him. It was, I hope he is mad at somebody else today. Right, as opposed to we're all going to rock it and he's going to love us. And then I go to my best bosses, Jerry Nutter, who's the best boss that I celebrated in my in my book, The Culture Engine. And he had Nutterisms, he would say, um, which we, of course his, his team. I'm still connected to these folks that I worked with under Jerry. Thirty years later, we're still connected, and we still remember Nutterisms and kind of share them a little bit. But Jerry's view was, you guys are brilliant. You're closer to this than I am. I'm kind of over here doing more strategic things. You guys manage the tactics. And if you need something from me, then, then let me know. And he was great in front of you know a big team. He was great in front of our volunteers. But what I remember, what all of us remember was when we did something wrong, when we fell short, Jerry never demeaned, discounted us. 
never dismissed us, but he engaged us in conversations, and it was almost worse, right? It was like, it's, it's easy to discount someone who's going to go, oh, you're an idiot, Edmund, you screwed it up again. And it's like, yeah, whatever, right? You know, I'm going I'm to go off and do my own thing, because I'm not going to get anything of validation from, from this boss or from these peers. But Jerry was so driven to want us to make new mistakes every day, not the same ones. It was totally cool. It was totally cool. And so we often, and, and again, I've had this conversation uh, with Sue and with Anne, part of, part of this team that worked with Jerry for quite a while. We would go into that meeting with a full plan of what we should have done different and what we'll do next time. If I was dealing with Skip, the other boss, I wanted out of the room as quickly as possible. I didn't want to engage. Because even if I came up with an idea, I knew it wasn't going to be good enough. And so there's this deflation, right, that happens. And it's like, I'm going to go get beaten up again. And again, I think all of these bosses are attempting to find the magic, right? They're trying to craft a way to motivate people, a way to inspire production. And, and mostly it was all production. What was great about Jerry was that, and, and, and again, some other great bosses that I've had uh, and been blessed with, is it wasn't just about production. It was about production, but it was also about learning, and it was about growth, and it was about opportunity, and it was about what can we do different? How do we, how do we wow these folks next time? Because we're going to do this cool program in three months again. How are we going to completely wow them? Because now we've, we've kind of wowed them again. What are we going to do? And it was this constant feeling like I can come up with ideas. They may be stupid. I'm not sure they're stupid or not. But we had an environment with Jerry that no idea was stupid. It might be less brilliant than others will come up with. But the ideas of how do we make this better, how do we do this different, moves you away from maintaining a system to actually creating new experiences and better loyalty from customers. And even more important, and you can hear it in my voice, better loyalty from the employees because we felt valued. We felt validated. When we screwed up, it was mostly kind of laughter and the team. I didn't turn out <laughs> like I thought. But if you think of the productivity, which is often the sole output that is, is driven by lousy bosses and okay bosses. Great bosses are typically interested in growth and, and, and maintaining a good relationship and, in essence, being kind, but also being kind of the tough love thing, being truthful about here's our target, here's what happened, we fell short, what are we going to do? But it's, it's much, much my experience, and Pete, I know yours is too, it's much, much more likely that we're going to drive harder and move the organization forward faster if we feel trusted and respected and treated with dignity than not. Absolutely, yes. And I want to kind of touch upon that point when you said you knew you screwed up and you were going in for, for the conversation and it wasn't demeaning. What were some of the, the questions posed to you or, or how did that conversation unfold? Well, and, and, and it's so interesting because I think back to, and let's use the Skip and Jerry comparison, right? Because they're classic, you know, lousy bosses and a great boss. And Skip was always interested in blame. It rolled off his tongue 
very, very quickly. And so if I was going in as, as an individual contributor that had fallen short, I knew I was going to get blamed. And, and maybe <laughs> this is, this is going to give you some insights into the way my mind works. It's like, well, what creative ways is he going to blame me today? You know, I was really kind of intrigued at that. You know, where is he going to go with this? But it wasn't that I was interested in learning from him. I wasn't feeling like I was going to leave inspired, right? It was, I was going to be blamed. And I didn't want to be blamed. I wanted somebody else to be blamed, which is, again, it's not a, it's not a team building thing. It's a team eroding thing. And so the questions that Jerry asked were about, tell me what you're thinking now. I know what your plan was. We went through the plan. If there was one or two things that you wish you'd have done different now, knowing what we know now, which we didn't know before, you know, what are they? You know, so it's the solution thing. What are we going to do different next time? How do we, he would, he would say all the time, how do we, make new mistakes. He, I remember him asking me once, did we make all new mistakes on this thing? Or did we make some old ones? And I said, well, I think we made a couple of old ones. Well, tell me more about that. And so it wasn't a power conversation. It wasn't him better than me, him right dismissing me, demeaning me, discounting me. It was what's out there that we can learn from? How do we share this with the rest of the team? So again, we make new mistakes. We do different things. You know, what What are people going to be asking for next? Because it's, we're going to have to deliver it, right? How do, we, how do we inspire a much, much better experience for, for and again, you know, I was a nonprofit executive. I was a YMCA executive for 15 years. And it's like, how do, how do we create those environments without spending a lot of money, right? And wowing these folks and wanting them to increase their loyalty and, and, and increase their feeling like, you know, we're helping their kids, we're helping them with, you know, validating character building kinds of programs. And again, yes, what I'm saying is in this environment, Christian based, Christian values based, pretty classic kind of nonprofit organization, right, with a crystal clear purpose about serving others and building character. And yet I had some of the worst bosses I ever experienced in that organization. And I had some of my best bosses in that same organization. And I went into the, boy, corporate finance. How's that for moving from, right, a, uh, an environment of, of a nonprofit into, into uh, the opposite? And I found, not surprisingly, bosses that came at this thing from fear and didn't want their people to make mistakes and were demeaning and dismissive and discounting. And in the same environment, I had absolutely great bosses. In that scenario, I was a, I was a, a coach. I was a, a, an internal consultant. And so I saw the same behaviors. So there could be some humanness to this. But the idea to get to, hopefully I answered your question around, you know, what did Jerry ask? What did your best boss do to kind of inspire learning and resolution, right, to whatever we screwed up? And I think both bosses were interested in the same thing, but one was about creative solutions and validating what we tried, and the other was about blame. Okay, very good. Thank you. Well, tell me, Chris, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and talk about some of your favorite things? Well, I really hope that that you know, there's there's something to be said for the Me Too movement continues to, to gain some powerful advocates, and, and I'm hopeful that we can craft more civil 
validating experiences for anyone who's ever experienced that kind of harassment. But what I want leaders to do, and you said it earlier, that I don't do anything dismissive. I don't do anything that could be remotely seen as harassment. And I think, you know, there's some of my teaching that I probably did. So it's the idea that as leaders, you need to be aware of how people feel and whether or not they're feeling trusted, respected in every interaction. And I think you will be shocked and surprised to find that for the most part, incivility is very, very common. I mean, we could look at the bullying influence, uh, which is unfortunately classically American, but there are great leaders doing great things in organizations and not letting people mistreat others. And we spend, again, so many hours in the workplace. That's something that I'm, I'm very, very hopeful about. So I'm going to keep pushing. And uh, I appreciate you giving me a forum to, to kind of preach to the choir. Oh, that's good. Thank you. Certainly. And Well, so now, you know, we did it last time, but I'd love to see if maybe anything's new and evolved. Could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Oh, boy. You know, where, I, where I've really gone, and, and it's certainly been shaded by uh, some of these conversations around civility, is I go back to Nike's just do it mantra, and I'm kind of like, no. If we do it and we're mean and nasty and ugly, yes, we might win, but others may not. How about just do it nicely? <laughs> so can we evolve to actually being civil? Maybe even the next layer of that is being nice to each other. That's, that's my bias right now. All right. And how about a favorite book? I just finished Sean Murphy's The Optimistic Workplace. Uh, Sean's a, a longtime friend, and I was pleased to help him with his launch a couple of years ago. And I was, I was sad to say that I didn't read the whole book. So read the whole book, and I just love it. And I think, again, what an interesting title, um, looking at how do we create workplaces where people want to go to work, where they want to contribute, where they want to be creative, where there is a natural optimism that we're actually, God forbid, improving the lives of our community members and our employees and our customers. That's, that's, a, that's a high, high target. And I want to give a shout out to Sean. He's, uh, he's just gotten a contract for his next book, which is going to be about belonging, which I'm very excited to hear about. So a couple of shout outs to Sean Murphy there. Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that's handy? I just had a wonderful opportunity last week at a learning session. I was qualified in an assessment that uh, is about leadership impact. It was really, really cool. But a whole bunch of consultants in a room at one time, which could be kind of dangerous. And, and what was really, really interesting was going out to dinner with all these folks. Again, I travel a lot. Most of the time, it's a very, very solitary life. And for the last seven years or so, I've been on Tim Ferriss's slow-carb diet. And it's worked very well for me. So we go into these beautiful restaurants and I'm like, how is that prepared? <laughs> Can I have it grilled and not fried? No starches, no potatoes. Don't even bring me the breads. And people will look at me like, we did this three nights in a row. And they're like, finally, on the third night, you're really serious about this. And I said, it's something that if I don't fuel my best physical self, then how can I do well? You know, I just turned 66 and I'm out traveling all the time. It's exhausting to travel. So my habit continues to be to be disciplined in how I fuel my best self. And it's working still pretty well. Oh, great. And do you have a preferred means of folks contacting you or reaching out if they want to learn more about your stuff here? Absolutely. I'd send them to my 
absolutely wonderfully recently redesigned website, which is at drivingresultsthroughculture.com. I know it's a handful, but got my books available there. I'm in the midst of of year two of culture leadership charge videos, little three-minute videos on how leaders can be more effective in managing their team culture. So that's probably the best place, drivingresultsthroughculture.com. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Absolutely. So one of the things that that is critical, and, and again, we can take it from the me too and people speaking up, create an environment in your team. And you don't have to change the whole company, right? But in your team where people can speak up, where people can say, we're not working together well. We're mistreating each other. The teasing has gone too far. So you can start to address what could be harmless intentions. <laughs> that may not always be the case. But to, in essence, reduce those things that erode trust and respect in the workplace. Let people speak up. Uh, it's, it can be hard conversations. But um, to continue on a path of dismissing and demeaning folks isn't going to serve you well. All right. Well, there you have it. Chris, thank you so much for chatting again. This was a lot of fun. And uh, I wish you and your company and your book and all sorts of success and luck and the months to come here. I so appreciate it, Pete. Again, thanks for the opportunity. Always enjoy speaking with you. Dismissive, discounting, demeaning. I think it's a good turn of a phrase or a bad turn of a phrase, things you, you don't want to do. And I think that the discounting one is probably maybe the most risky for you know nice folks. You can accidentally discount what someone says and not realize the, the gravity of it, where they're coming from with it, how much they may have pondered it, sat with it, worried about it before bringing it up. And I think it's really cool to honor what folks are saying and to dig in with great interest, enthusiasm, and curiosity so that folks feel heard and cared about and, and more likely to, to share the good stuff. As Chris said in a prior episode, people see stuff that's dumb. And if they don't feel comfortable speaking up, they will just never tell you about it. So that is not where you want to be. So again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F274. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe to hear from our next guest. It is Mary Abajay. She's talking about managing up, how one goes about managing your manager. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.